the Apostle Paul in the New Testament teaches that believers have the gospel. And he gives you a picture. He says, here's what it's like. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it's like having a treasure. That's the power of the gospel. In jars of clay, that's us. Easily broken, very vulnerable, quite fragile. We're mortal in our bodies, frail children of dust. The power of God is at work in us and through us. Treasure in, well, we're not so strong, jars of clay. Later in the letter, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Those are some paradoxes for the Christian life. There's affliction and perplexity. But that's not all. God is faithful. His promises are true. His mercies are new every morning. There's also that sense of being struck down. But that's not all. His strength is supplied. His wisdom is granted. His grace is sufficient. Those things are also true. Amen. So in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, Paul says that he as an apostle is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Some of you were mouthing that as I finished it because you know that verse. I received an email from a believer this week uh, from outside Louisville and he signed his email sorrowful but always rejoicing and then his name. So there's a little sign off there just playing on the Apostle Paul's language that this is so much the Christian life. The Christian life is lived in the midst of those truths. Struck down but not destroyed. Persecuted but not forsaken. Afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed, not driven to despair. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. These are the things that are true. We live our lives in the midst of all of this. It makes me think of the beginning of Charles Dickens' famous book, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You just realize life is the kind of paradox where you affirm those realities in the midst, at the same time of our lives. Friends, the psalmists, can so identify with that. If David had been given an advanced copy of 2 Corinthians, King David would have read Paul's words and said, Yes, Paul, that's it. I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There it is. For those who follow Christ, we find as we trust Him and as we look to His Word, that the afflictions of this life are not at odds with God's love for us. We have to grow into this truth because initially, perhaps, it seems that the afflictions of this life might be at odds with God's love for us. We come to grow in the Word of God and we come to see the character of God and the faithfulness of God and we realize the love of God is what the Bible calls steadfast. That word steadfast is a really important adjective. The steadfast love of God means it's faithful and dependable. Not here one day and gone tomorrow. Or just fickle because of other circumstances. There is a steadfastness in the love of God that doesn't get negated by affliction. 
The psalmist, like the believer, Paul in the New Testament, knows that as we fear the Lord and follow the Lord, knowing Him, delighting in Him, our hope is not in vain. In fact, we say on this side of an empty tomb, our hope is not in vain because death has died in Christ as He has triumphed over the sting of death. And therefore, our hope in Him is not in vain. For when He returns, He shall raise the dead. He shall right wrongs. He shall apply perfect justice in all heaven and earth that He has made. So the psalmist knows what it is like to follow God in affliction and to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Maybe you can really resonate with that. And you think, yes, indeed, the Lord is faithful. His promises are true. And yet the challenges of life and the afflictions of this day, it means that this is a kind of banner over our lives and seasons, isn't it? Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The psalmist knows what it is like to exalt the Lord and praise the Lord on a path that has been marked by pain. And the psalmist hasn't been suffering some meager amount of difficulty. In the majority of the psalms that we've seen, and we're in Psalm 30 in our study of Book 1 this year, before we go to another series. In our study of Book 1 of the psalms, we've seen in the majority of them, Looking to God in the midst of difficulty and lament. The psalmist knows what it is like to exalt the Lord and praise God on a path marked with pain. In this psalm, we see again the writer is David. David writes as one who's come to the very gates of death itself. It's as if death was the very next step for David. And the Lord delivered David... And David's going to reflect on that rescue. In verse 2, it seems that the inside of the psalmist in his own testimony is that David was ill. Facing a physical distress where his very life was ebbing away. And that this distress was overcome, reversed by the power of God. In this psalm, he's going to talk to the Lord. He's going to talk about the Lord. And he's going to talk to the Lord again. In verses 1 to 3, he talks to the Lord. Verses 4 and 5, he talks about the Lord. And in verses 6 to 12, to the Lord. There is this line right next to the authorship claim. Did you notice it right above verse 1? A song at the dedication of the temple. Even these superscriptions are inspired of the Lord. They're in the ancient documents and copies of the Hebrew Bible. It says they're translated from Hebrew to English. It's important that we not only notice the authorship, but any additional information. Here is an example of some additional comment. A song at the dedication of the temple. We know that David's son Solomon constructed the temple, but David prepared for it. The temple was on David's mind. In David's ministry, uh, in, in kingship over Israel, David actually asked the Lord that he would build a house for the Lord. Now, the Lord had allotted that task for David's son, but it was on David's heart. We also know that in 1 Chronicles, David began to exert energy to gather materials, as one writer described it. He was involved with forethought about the construction of and materials gathered for. We even know that in 2 Samuel 24, he acquires the land the temple will be built on under Solomon's reign as the successor. 
David is therefore preparing for it. And in the preparation, not only does David have in mind the land that he needed, not only does he have in mind the builders and the materials, for the day when the temple would be built, David had written a song. This is a dedication song that the power of God and the deliverance of God would be rejoiced in on the day the temple was set apart. David would not see that day, the famous ribbon-cutting ceremony. David would not be there that day, but his psalm would. This was a song for the dedication of the temple. And in verses 1 to 3, he praises the Lord for deliverance, and he's talking to the Lord. David says, I will extol you, O Lord. Extol. I don't use this word a lot, do you? The word extol, it means to praise. It means to offer up praise to. To extol is is another way of talking about exalting. I will extol you or praise you. And here's the reason. So he makes this announcement to praise the Lord. His resolve to praise the Lord. For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. David was ebbing away at his very physical well-being. So much so that it's it's as if David was sinking into death itself. To be drawn up is the image David provides us of someone like, think of a, a bucket and a well of water that is deep. And lowering that bucket to draw up what is there that would not be removed without being drawn up. David is saying, you have drawn me up where I was descending the sinking situation of my life. There was no recovery I was going to accomplish. It would be you, O God, if it were to happen. It would be by your mercy and power if it were to be accomplished. And behold, you have drawn me up. You have reached down with your mighty hand and you have pulled me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Oh, people around David would have loved to have seen him destroyed. He is indeed a believer within the land of Israel, but he's also the king. And political upheaval or the death of a mighty ruler could be in the best interest of many people who would conspire against David. So if David were ill and his life was heading to the end, oh, they would rejoice over David's death triumphantly. So God draws David up. And David says, not only have you drawn me up, I will extol you because you didn't let my foes have the last word. They longed for my demise, but you didn't let them rejoice over me. He was rescued. In chapter 29 that we saw last week, the Lord is sovereign over the waters. The voice of the Lord upon the waters in verse 3. His voice powerful and full of majesty in verse 4. And also enthroned over the flood in verse 10. We know that the flood waters... Whether it's the Red Sea, whether it's the flood in Noah's day in Genesis 6, there are images of mighty waters that prove to be waters of judgment. And if someone passes through those waters on the other side, whether they're in the ark in Genesis 6 and 7, or whether they're in the dry ground through walls of water in the mighty Exodus, going through the waters means deliverance. And God... In in, uh, Psalm 29 is enthroned over the flood. Perhaps this is the watery image David now opens with. In other words, near the end of our last psalm, God is enthroned over the waters. Well, here's David sinking down. And in Psalm 30, the beginning of the next psalm, 
David is drawn out, you see. God is enthroned over the flood. That's why he should be praised and be the refuge for David. God is enthroned and therefore David praises the Lord. I will extol you for you've drawn me up. You've not let my foes rejoice over me. I cried to you for help, O Lord my God, in verse 2. I cried to you for help and you've healed me. Now that language in verse 2, you've healed me is where Old Testament scholars would say, here's a likely piece of information, not a long phrase, just a little bit of information that could help us with the context of the psalm. David is in some kind of physical unwellness, and now he has been healed, he, his situation has been reversed. First and Second Samuel are the narratives that, in, that uh, incorporate stuff from the life of David. When you flip through First and Second Samuel, you don't find David facing sickness. So this means First and Second Samuel aren't telling us everything about the life of David. And here in Psalm 30, we're given an instance that apparently in an unnarrated story, King David faced such a physical distress that he felt at the very gates of death themselves and that only God's delivering hand spared him. He says, I cried to you for help. He knew who to turn to. He knew he could cast himself upon the Lord. And he could trust the Lord no matter the outcome. God is enthroned. And therefore he is the only help and strength for his people as the one enthroned. So he says in verse 3, with this praise of deliverance section. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol here is a picture probably not just of death. But of what the unrighteous would certainly go to with a negative image in this verse. In verse 3, at the end of verse 3, those going down to Sheol or going down to the pit. And that was a place viewed not just of uh, something beyond this life, but especially a place of punishment for the ungodly. So David is delighted that he was not under God's judgment. Instead, he had been spared by the Lord, delivered by God. He had been brought up. It's that same upward image, isn't it? In verse 1, drawn up. In verse 3, brought up, same picture. It's like resurrection from the dead. Here he is at death's door. And God overcomes the power of death and delivers David. He says in verse 3, you restored me to life. I don't think this has to mean David actually died and was brought back to life. Even though in the Old Testament, that does happen for people in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. But it does indicate with this poetic imagery how dire the situation was. It was so serious that David says, it's like you've brought me back from the dead. That's my situation, Lord. You did this. You restored me. And in verses 4 and 5, he says, well, I shouldn't be the only one praising God for this. He says in verses 4 and 5, I want you to praise God with me for this. Because David's testimony here in Psalm 30 is meant to stir and stimulate the praise of the saints for the power of God on display. You, th you think about this in the stories we hear from time to time in the lives of one another. We hear of God's provision and we say, praise the Lord, isn't he faithful? And we hear of the Lord's healing power. And we hear of the Lord's saving grace in the lives of the lost. And we marvel, like, what a wonderful God we have. Well, how faithful and good, how wise and praiseworthy. 
And that's because when we give testimony about what God has done, it's an invitation for others to join you in praising God. So here's David in verses 4 and 5. A summons. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. So all of a sudden he's not talking to the Lord anymore. He's talking about the Lord. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Well, we're the saints if we're knowing God. If he is our refuge, if we've trusted in his son, if we have cast ourselves upon his mercy, we are the saints of God because we are the people of God marked by hope in Christ. We are the saints. The saints, in other words, are God's covenant people. So David's saying, well, you'll you'll know what I mean when I talk about the wonders and strength of the Lord. You'll want to join me in this. So he says, sing praises. One of the things then that we do in response to who God is and what God has done is not just saying the goodness of God, but singing the goodness of God. And you say, well, singing is saying. Yes, but not all saying is singing. You see what I mean? In other words, it's taking it one step beyond that there is this jubilant, celebratory outpouring of the heart that's come to know God and experience God that you want to proclaim in song and with others to do so. So we gather on the Lord's Day and we do this. We do this in verses 4 and 5 and give thanks to His holy name. Sing praises, give thanks. This is on David's mind. He wants us to praise the Lord and give thanks to God. And in order to give thanks to God, we are, we're meditating on reasons. We're thinking about what, what stirs our gratitude. Who God is and what God has done. Not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. As we reflect on the holy name of God, we want to praise it. We want to give thanks to God. And in verse 5, the last part of this summons is a reason in verse 5, dealing with a contrast. And it's a contrast with the anger of the Lord. In this case, what would feel like the discipline of the Lord and the favor of God. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. The anger here is temporal. The favor is everlasting. That's the contrast. Do you notice not just with what's being contrasted, anger and favor, but the length of time. That's going to that's going to be a great basis for our praise because the the righteousness of God displays itself in right justice and righteous anger in the world. So if God disciplines his people, let's say the chastisement that David might experience in his own life, David knows that's not what lasts forever. We are sinners following the Lord. We are repenting sinners, ensnared and tempted by all sorts of things around us and within us. So we need the righteous discipline and guidance of the Lord that feels like rebuke, correction, anger. But that's not the heaviest, weightiest, longest lasting reality. Instead, for his people, whom he guides and goads, whom he upholds and corrects, whom he admonishes and loves, it is his favor that David emphasizes here. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. And perhaps, and perhaps this verse is suggesting that what David had been experiencing was something tantamount to the discipline of the Lord. That now the favor of God and blessing of God has come upon him in a fresh way. This favor 
is what David has been experiencing, the deliverance of the Lord. And he says, this is for a lifetime. I don't think he means that it ends at death. This is David speaking from an earthly perspective that the the greatest thing, the lasting thing is the blessing and favor and face of God upon his people. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The reference of morning and evening here, or morning and night, are not about literal 24-hour periods. Rather, the night, the word night becomes this metaphor for the darkness of what David endured. It's as if he was in what some writers in history have called the dark night of the soul. He was in a night. That's what his season was. So we're not talking about, yeah, just the few hours of the sun not being seen and the darkness settling over the land. That's not this. There's, this is a poetic image. He's talking about what he was going through and that it tarried onward, come, accompanied by weeping, sorrow. That was the time of the night. But then David was drawn up. David was brought up by the one enthroned over the flood. God gave mercy to David. God delivered David. And that was like night turning to day. In other words, that was morning. It's like the the season had finally been followed by the morning light. And that's not accompanied with the sorrow and weeping, but with joy. With the kind of rejoicing in God that is fitting the God who by His hand has rescued His people. That kind of Language night and day or night and morning is poetic to describe those seasons. David is now celebrating on the other side of the difficulty. Now, what else can we, might we be able to say about David's difficulty? Verses 6 and 7 are about a previous distress David faced. I don't think this has to be different from the illness whatever physical distress he experienced. But it could suggest that inwardly, David struggles with what is the normal human struggle, and that is to boast in oneself, to feel very good and secure with one's own accomplishments, and to fail to look to the Lord consistently. So I'm going to look at verses 6 and 7 here as David's admission of a prior statement that was wrong. All right, so in verses 6 and 7, his previous distress sounded like this. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. We have to be careful with this language because sometimes the psalmists celebrate God as their rock and that they shall never be moved in Him. They have an unwavering, faithful God. And therefore, they want to be like this. They want to be those rooted and planted firm. They want to be those looking to with steadfastness the God who loves them. But but I'm going to take verses 6 and 7 to be a different kind of use of this language, an ironic kind, a kind of boast in oneself that David says, here's what was going on within me. I looked within all of my prosperity. And by the way, as a king, you would have no short amount of it. We're talking about a mighty palace and an army at his command. We're talking about gold and resources. We're talking about prosperity that boggles the mind. He said, in my prosperity, I'm secure. There's not a language here, is there, about refuge in God or not being moved because of his faith in God. He's in his prosperity feeling the allure of worldly security. 
He feels the allure of that. He's got a position he likes. He's got all these resources. He's got power and authority over these in the land. He's been mightily blessed by the Lord. So he looks at this and he says, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Well, hold on. The Lord can humble the proud. Pride goes before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us. I think verse 7 is David's recognition about where his security truly is from. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You know, David rules in Jerusalem during those 40 years. David has much at his command and, and much that he has been blessed with. It, it's, the, it, it's represented here with this word mountain. It, it's David's livelihood and his reign. And he says, well, Lord, you did that. You, by your favor, granted that. But you hid your face. Verse 7. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Meaning that just as David has experienced the blessing and favor of the Lord that looked at times like comfort and prosperity, David also knew what it was like to have everything and be near death. And nothing David had could save him. No army, no mighty palace, no matter all the gold he had in the treasury, how is any of that going to deliver him from death? So he recognizes here, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. But you hid your face. This is David's way of talking about a season of night that settled upon his life. Where it didn't look like comfort and blessing. It didn't feel like prosperous circumstances. It felt like difficulty. It felt like distress and heartbreak. It felt like pain and physical unwellness. And he doesn't know if I'm going to live through this. So he says, Lord, you hid your face. I was dismayed. So I'm taking verses 6 and 7 to be David talking about that previous distress. David was tempted to look to the prosperity and feel very good about his situation. When really it was all from the hand of the Lord anyway. How easily even King David can forget that. And he's reminded in the powerlessness of all those worldly accomplishments that in the end, his great help, his great hope can only be the Lord. It can only be the Lord. So he says in verses 8 through 10, here was the cry for mercy. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. And I asked, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Verses 8 through 10 are David's recollection right after the distress. He talks about his cry. He says, here's what I said in my heart and my prosperity. I shall never be moved. Well, then, then I found my heart crying out for mercy. Because I moved from the situation where in my prosperity I was feeling quite good. But then everything I had couldn't deliver me from death. And I'm reminded once again, it's you, O Lord, that are my strength and shield. So he says, here was my plea. What gain is there in my death in terms of earthly praise and thanksgiving? Because if David's life is silenced, if, if he dies, if he goes to the pit, if, if he's brought down to the dust then there's no earthly praise for David to offer. Now, this same psalmist, 
speaks in other psalms about being in the presence of the Lord forevermore. And so this is not a denial of any afterlife reality at all. It's David feeling the pain of, Lord, my life for you, for your glory, for your praise, that will come to an end when I die, won't it, in an earthly sense. So David, David's recognizing my, my death, the dust that's going to receive me. He says, well, Lord, is the dust that my body descends to, is that dust going to praise you? I want to praise you. I want to praise you in this life. In verse 9, these questions for David are observed by many Old Testament writers, scholars, and commentators to say, what's animating David's concern? What he wants to live for. That's what. What he wants to live for. There's something beneath David's words that explain why these questions arise. Namely, that our lives exist for the praise and glory of God. And David feels that. That's why he asks the questions he does. Now there are other questions he could ask. It would certainly be legitimate. What about my wife and children? What about the kingdom? What about the enemies that come around me? What about all sorts of questions he could add to the list. I want to suggest to you that this is the most central kind of concern for David. That he should be reminding himself my life exists for the praise of God. And that's why he asks these questions. It's about praising God in verse 9, telling of your faithfulness. You know why you and I live? We live that we might exist for the glory and praise of God. There's not a bigger purpose over which our lives will be lived in this fallen world. That is the overarching and central thing for which the world was made and for which you were made for the praise of God. And that you, like David, would have this longing at the end of verse 9 to tell of the faithfulness of the Lord. So David's making good on that word. He wrote Psalm 30. He's going to make sure it's told. And even beyond his day, people are going to be reading it. He wants to tell of the faithfulness of the Lord. He wants to live for it. He knows he may die. Okay? He he knows that in the end, there will only be so many sparings from the dust David will not live forever, no matter if he is spared in the meantime from this or from that. In the end, we go to the grave. So David knows while I live, what should animate my life? What should I live centrally for? The praise and glory and faithfulness of God. To tell it, to sing it, to exalt it, to tell others of it. This is David's heart. And in verses 11 to 12, he ends where he begins. Many psalms do that, I think we've noticed. A psalmist opening one way and then coming full circle by the time it's all said and done. Verses 11 and 12 are thanksgiving for God's deliverance. And at the very beginning of the psalm, he gave praise for God's deliverance. I just want to look at the very end of verse 12 for a moment to show you what I mean. I will give thanks to you. That's what he says. He opens the psalm saying, I will extol you. He ends the psalm saying, I will give thanks to you. These are the opening and ending words. I will extol you. I will give thanks to you. And all in the middle, you're going to hear why. That's Psalm 30. So he says, here's what you've done, and for which I am thankful in verses 11 and 12. You've turned for me my mourning. And there's a you in this one, right? If we look at the word carefully, this isn't about the time of day. This is about that season of sorrow. The difficult road of pain David's been on. You took that, Lord, and you did something that I could not do. This is the power of God's reversal. 
You see this all throughout the Old and New Testaments. Where God demonstrates his supremacy and his might by taking a situation that with every worldly means brought to it would not change apart from the power of God. And God, God did this, David says. You turned my mourning into dancing. And he he ends uh, verse 11 with this line about sackcloth and clothing with gladness. In a time of mourning... The metaphor here of loosing my sackcloth also reaches toward a literal application of garments to signify sorrow. If people in the ancient world were in a time of grief, sometimes you knew it because of the way they were dressed. You knew the way they were dressed. They might be sitting in ashes. They might be donning certain garments upon their their waist or over their head. And they, they looked like they might not be having business as usual in life, but that they're going through a season. So David says, you did something about this, Lord. You and your rescuing grace, your powerful mercy, you showed up and you turned for me my morning into dancing and you loosed my sackcloth, which means it's not tied tight like it's not going anywhere. You loosened it so it could be removed. You loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with something else. Clothed me with gladness. This is the dawn of something new in David's life. He's gone through this season and now the morning has come after a different kind of morning. Dancing has come. Clothed with gladness has come. And we rejoice when those seasons are there, when God clothes us with gladness, leads our hearts into joyous and jubilant celebration of His mercy. We wish there were only those seasons. We know that in a fallen world, the righteous suffer. And there is affliction upon our doorsteps, sins within our hearts, seasons of darkness that we can see. Friend, let Psalm 30 encourage you this morning. The darkness does not have the last word. It is the favor of God that is lasting. And it is the clothing with gladness that shall be our everlasting dress. You can hope in God. It will not be in vain. He says, you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise. Why does God do this? Look at the connection between 11 and 12. Why did God do this? So that God's praise might be known. David will tell of God's faithfulness. So when the Lord acts upon our lives and he is merciful, when he does not give us according to what our sins have deserved, but we have been recipients of His steadfast covenant love, let us tell of it. Let us sing of it. Let us shout of His faithfulness because David says, that's why you do this, Lord. You turned, you loosed, so that my glory may sing. And the glory here, this might seem a strange word, that my glory may sing. Isn't glory belonging to God? This is David speaking in a way that as a king, he has received glory and honor from God as a king and ruler in Israel. He's reflecting the blessings of God. So David's talking about his own life as a glory. This is a a substitute word for David just saying, I. He could have just said, so that I may sing your praise. He's talking about my glory may sing your praise. It's, It's all of David's life, the wholeness of his life, that it may sing your praise and not be silent. So if God is good and wise, 
And God is faithful and trustworthy. And His steadfast love never ceases. And His mercies are new every morning. You know what is not fitting with that? Us saying nothing. (laughs) Being silent about all of those grand realities that shape the world. And are bringing things to an end consummation that will be of such joy and life. That we have no comparison for it in this life. Just by faith trusting in His supremacy and His great work to come. Even by faith, we don't want to stay silent. We want to sing of it and we want to tell of it. And at the end of verse 12, oh, my, oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David wants his heart to have an abiding, grateful posture. And the way he would have an everlasting, grateful posture is if his heart and mind are tuned to who God is and what he has done Day by day, day by day, week by week, month by month, season by season, that the unchanging God, His goodness and faithfulness, would be the thing before David. And that with that, before David's mind and eye, he can indeed have thanksgiving to God. For God is always worthy of praise and always worthy of thanksgiving. David opens and ends in that way. I think about the disciples of the Lord in the many psalms that they would have read in the course of their life growing up. The book of Psalms would have been so important to these New Testament apostles. And of course the Lord Jesus teaching that the law and the prophets and the psalms testify of Him and point toward Him. And yet the disciples, they heard Jesus say things like, if any man wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. And we know that in order to get resurrection, there must come death. And so the disciples realize that the Christian life is shaped like a cross. And they're going to carry this cross, so to speak. They follow the Lord who goes into death and out the other side in resurrection power. They can trust Him. They can trust Him with all their pain and with all their affliction. This is a road, though it be marked with pain, it leads to a tomb and out the other side at the return of Christ. And therefore, therefore we can praise Him. And we can give thanksgiving to Him. Even the disciples learned this. Think of the grief of what the cross settled upon them before the resurrection. Here the one in which they placed their hopes. He's taken into Roman custody. He's tried by Jews and Romans. He's crucified under Pontius Pilate. I can't imagine the lament and sorrow. Wondering if all the years of their following after this man might have been in vain. But he had told them. He had told them the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And on the third day, He will rise again. They needed to know that even for their great sorrow, the weeping would just last for some nights. And on the first day of the week, joy would come in the morning. They would experience it. They would have their sackcloth removed and they would be clothed with a gladness that they would never get over because the Savior lives. And because He lives... I can face tomorrow. Friend, this night and morning language Paul wants to encourage us with in Romans 13. He says, you know this time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Let us look to the Lord. Let's pray.